my goodness, this is for a tall guy. <laughs> you know, when uh, I was being wired up this morning, I was reminded of, uh, can you, can we lower this just a tad? Yes. How, how do we, um, where do you, where do you do that? The bottom. The bottom one? Okay. I actually usually have to raise it up, so that's fine. No, this, is, that, this is fine. Good? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was being wired up and I was reminded of a friend of mine who got all wired up and they turned it on and he decided that he needed to go to the bathroom. <laughs> and the congregation got it all. <laughs> so sometimes there's a little danger involved <clears throat> in this process. Well, I'd like to start off by reading you a poem. And... Uh, uh, I think this is a good introduction for what I want to talk about today. But it's a poem that's a prayer called Not by Bread Alone by Bruce Puta. Uh, and he starts off each uh, unit with a statement. In a world where people live for pride, eating the bread of vanity, save us from the concept that looks for public praise and honor from the vain glory that flaunts our diplomas and degrees, from the arrogance of religious and moral swaggered, from the insolence of supposed racial superiority. Save your children, Lord. <clears throat> In a world where people live by uh, force eating the bread of power, save us from all attempts to manipulate our friends from the temptation to scorn a defeated opponent, from the desire to use chance advantages to disadvantage others, from leaders who love to rule more than to serve. Save your children, Lord. In a world where people live by greed, eating the bread of cupidity, save us from envy of those with larger homes from selling our ethics for a few more dollars, from trusting the stock market more than the scriptures, from supporting only those charities which offer income tax deductions. Save your children, Lord. In a world where people live by pleasure, eating the bread of sensuality, save us from turning food into an extravagant habit, from cluttering our homes with technological toys, from using sexuality for indulgent lust, from loving things and using people. Save your children, Lord. You know, the Lord, uh, it, it's very interesting to see in the culture that we live in today that there is an, kind of an unspoken, maybe unrecognized thing going on called reduction reducing us from the high calling that God has on our lives to be these sophisticated creatures that are captured by these many things that I just described. But the Lord wants to call us upward, to call us to be the image bearers of God, to live in such a way that we leave a mark on the world that we live in that is calling the world upward and not reducing it to its lowest possible common denominator. So I'd like to talk to you about a little of this in relationship to the church. You know, there are so many different descriptions of the church that are given. <clears throat> One is 
the church is the, the uh, one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And that's a wonderful title. And it can be dealt with so easily in a very sophisticated intellectual way. But basically what it's saying is this, that we are one body in Christ and Jesus calls us to this. He says, I in them and thou in me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world might know that thou didst send me. And we need to incline ourselves toward that in terms of loving our brothers and sisters in Christ in this setting, in this setting, Dayton, in this setting, the U.S., and in the world around us. And we can step into that spirit of oneness in terms of our own disposition and the way we pray for one another, the way we relate to one another, the way we respect one another. We can't get involved in all the details of one another's lives worldwide, but we can pray, we can worship together, and we can honor one another. One holy, and the word holy basically is a word that says, these are the called out ones. Called out for what? Just to be more sophisticated human beings? No, we're called out to be the image bearers of God. You know, one of the things that uh, has really captured my heart in these retirement years, or semi-retirement years, I guess would be a better way of putting it. Now, I like the idea of semi-retirement. But, you know, I no longer operate with title and a lot of some of the prestige of being able to speak here and there in the world. But I am just a very simple man, having a time in my life where I can really team up with my wife in a way that I never have been able to before, and uh, to really do the household together, to do the simple things together, to do family together, to do church together. And I love this era of my life. But the one thing that really has captured my heart is just the simplicity of it all. Because if you go back to first truth, when God first created man and woman, the thing that made them unique and uh, significant was that they were made in the image and likeness of God. They were surrounded by other creatures. These other creatures functioned much like them, but at the same time, they were different and they were unique and they were very significant in the midst of the creation because they were the image bearers of God. I want you to know that as you look up here today, you are seeing a very significant creature. I want you to know that as I look out at you today, I see very significant creatures made in the image and likeness of God. So there's something about this matter of image and likeness that we really need to capture. And um, uh, there's another aspect to this too. You have Adam and Eve in a garden, their garden, garden, the garden that God gave them, a place for them to abode. And in the midst of that, what, what was their purpose? Well, they were there to mediate the presence of God into their garden. So here we are, significant creatures, and all of us have, as it were, our own garden, our own sphere, and we're to mediate the presence of God. If you want to put it on the simplest uh, possible, com find the simplest common denominator, that is the simplest common denominator for why we exist as a Christian people. For we are redeemed humanity now, 
And we've stepped into a circle where God is truly now our God, our Heavenly Father, and where we are redeemed through the work of Jesus, and where God has captured us in the sense that he indwells us and is present with us and enabling us and calling us on to rise above the culture and to live in a way that really honors him. So this is the reason I started off with this uh, poem today. One holy, a people called out for God to live significant lives and purposeful lives in this world that we live in. You have your garden, I have mine. One of the things too that, uh, well, let's, let's go on. One holy Catholic, and this speaks of the universality of the church worldwide throughout the world today. One of the things that I enjoyed so much about four years ago uh, in our city, we have a sister city relationship with Huneki, a city in Japan that um, where the men that I recruited years ago for the Campus Crusade work, this was another era in Japan, now was a pastor, and we forged this sister city relationship between our city and their city. And when the bicentennial came for my city at Mansfield, uh, I was asked to uh, put together the worship service for the week at the fairgrounds. And uh, I thought, oh, man, this is quite an undertaking, and it really was. But I teamed up with a wonderful man by the name of Jerry King, who was the pastor or the presiding elder of Grace Fellowship. And uh, we put on a worship service in which 72 churches participated at the fairgrounds. And, uh, you know, I look back at that and I just say, Lord, that, what a wonderful, wonderful experience to call the church together, the Catholic, this idea of the universality of the church, this idea of the oneness of the church. But it was a wonderful, wonderful experience in terms of worshiping together, of contentful worship, of worship that honored God, that worship was orthodox in its content. One holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. The cornerstone of the church is Jesus Christ. The foundation are the apostles and the prophets. And uh, we have the inheritance of that in the scriptures. And these scriptures are so meaningful to us because they help us to really understand how the church is to be built, how the church is to express itself. So I'd like to talk to you a little bit about that today. And uh, let me just mention another, before I go on, another um, description that's given of the church in the New Testament. It's also called the body of Christ. And so I'm looking here at a body of Christ. And one would ask, well, how is that affected? Well, it's affected in this sense that there's something that is uniquely in common to each and every one of us sitting here, and that is the presence of God here. That is affected through his Holy Spirit. And uh, this Holy Spirit is the enabling presence of God. This Holy Spirit is also called by Paul in Romans chapter 8, the Spirit of Christ. And of course, here we embrace the mystery of the Trinity. But if the Spirit is here, the Father is here, the, the Spirit is here, there is a sense of that. And we are called the body of Christ to express Christ into the world that we live in, to the garden that we have. So I just wanted to, I, I'd love to develop that theme more. I just wanted to mention another 
title that's given to the church. My purpose today, let me turn to my purpose statement here. Some of you who have been in our class understand what I'm after. I had marked this beautifully and now I, here, here we go. As the church, God has called us to be a people sharing a common life in God. This is to be much more than a superficial social, be much more than superficial social contacts, contacts that pass for Christian fellowship. Rather, we are to be a people that have committed relationships under God to a life together in service to God and to the world as the people of God. Let me read it again to you because I'd like for this to just sort of sink in. As the church, God has called us to be a people sharing a common life in God. So to be much more than a, than a superficial social contact that people pass for Christian fellowship. Rather, we are to be a people that have committed relationships under God to a life together in service as the people of God. I'm going to uh, work from several different portions of scripture, but uh, to get into that, let me just uh, talk about this. Trying to build a church in modern secular society is like trying to build a house in a hurricane. Uh, we have so many different influences around us that are just sweeping around us and influencing us and uh, causing us to lose our perspective of what this is all about. It's so easy for the church to become kind of an institution rather than a household. One of the challenges facing us is getting our lives ordered so that we can really live meaningfully before God here in this world. In this regard, I'd like to direct your thoughts this morning to a hierarchy of values. How do we prioritize our lives? And I would like to suggest to you that if what we believe is really true, that God is there and that he's expressed himself redemptively toward us in Jesus and his spirit indwells us, then that the first priority in our lives is to order our lives in a daily way around God. And I say daily because, frankly, if you don't do it daily, you're going to leak, at least if you're like me. It's a daily ordering our lives first around God. So in the order of the pecking order of life or prioritizing our life, the key is relationship. First, toward God. Secondly, if you're married, it's towards spouse and then your children, your family. And if not, then as best you can, your own family as a single person, uh, which may in some cases actually be the church itself. Uh, uh, thirdly, uh, the church community, God, family, church community. Uh, I had a, quite a debate with one of my colleagues on the East Coast over this issue because he kept saying, no, they're just kind of like the cross, the family and the church. And uh, I kind of disagreed with him on that because I feel like in my estimation, that under God, we our first challenge, if we're married, is toward our family and to direct that family in the way we order our lives toward God. Then the church community. 
This is where we experience spiritual family life. This is where we establish ourselves as a family with brothers and sisters. Fourth, career. Now, for some of us, that's kind of a challenge because often those of us, uh, if you're like I am, it's easy to get lost in your career and the things that you're doing uh, in the majority hours of your of the daylight uh, day. But at any rate, uh, we need to recognize that the careers are there to support our, our relationships. So in other words, the ordering of priority is an ordering of relationships. God, family, our church community, our church family, our careers are there to support our relationships. And then other involvements and activities that are important to us. I would suggest to you that getting this ordered rightly is what maturity is all about. It's one of the foundations for maturity. So anyway, today let's talk about the church community and the role of this family life that we have together. God has a vision for the church as a witness to the world. It's uh, very interesting to see in various passages the terminology that's used. I'd like to take you to what Paul has to say, to what Peter has to say, and to what Jesus has to say in this regard. If you would, turn with me to the book of Titus. The book of Titus, which is at the end of 2 Peter and the beginning of the book of Hebrews. The situation is this, that Peter has uh, left uh, Titus in Crete uh, to finish the work that had been start, started there. And he's, he's there to appoint apostles, to teach truth and refute error, uh, to build a people for God. These were the goals that were set before him. And uh, it's very interesting to see the disorder that existed at that time. And I would like to suggest to you that maybe that disorder is not so different from today, even in the sophisticated world that we live in. Take a look at verses in chapter one, verses 10 and following. Uh, as uh, Paul is describing the, the uh, people at Crete, he says, for there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things that things that ought not to they ought not to teach, and that for the sake and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said, "Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons." This saying is true. <laughs> Therefore, rebuke them sharply, so that they will be sound in faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To be pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupt. They claim to know God, but their actions, by their actions, they deny, deny him. I think that's a very uh, interesting phrase that maybe would be worth camping on just for a moment. They claim to know God, but by their actions, 
they deny him. Have you ever been caught in that yourself? I have. Our actions are very significant and important. What we say, what we do, how we live our lives. Well, anyway, this is a description that is given of uh, the challenge that was before Titus as he established elders, got things in order, gave good teaching, sound teaching to the people in the absence of Paul himself. And then go down in chapter 2 to verse 9. Uh, this after Paul gives some instruction between about older men and older women and younger men and younger women and so forth. And he comes to chapter, verse 9, chapter 2. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them not to talk back and not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted. And this is the phrase I'd like to capture. So that in every way, they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. And then continuing on, uh, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. One of the things that we'll be discussing today will be what is called in the theology class, eschatology or end times. But the, uh, the future that we have in God, basically what Paul is saying here, that future that we have with God is to break into the present to affect how we live now, especially as we deal with hardships, difficulties, challenging situations, and so forth. This is called the blessed hope. And so he continues on. Uh, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. And so we have somewhat of a description of what the church is all about. We are to be a people for God, a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. And if we're really making God daily a, the priority that he should be relationally in our lives, then we'll have that focus for the day. We'll have that focus as we go about the day. I try to do two things as I start the day. And uh, I, I love the fact that as I have breakfast in the, our breakfast nook, I'm looking out at the woods and I look at the creation, and I thank the Lord for that, and I look at the house, and I thank the Lord for the lovely warm house, especially in the winter that we have, and I see my wife across the room, and I say, thank you, Lord, for this woman. And uh, But anyway, the, the, actually, the two things I want to get at is this. Then I say to myself, who am I? I'm the image bearer of God. Why am I here today? I'm here in purpose to express the presence of God into this day, his character, his presence, his purposes for this day. Now, as I go through the day, there are times when that's not in focus, but nonetheless, it lingers there and it comes up every once in a while in my mind. I think of the times that I've been, <clears throat> I, I work at, try to work out at the Y three times a week. And uh, I'm in the locker room kind of, excuse me for being a little bit crass here, bumping butts with these other guys in this crowded locker room. And I'm reminded, why am I here? 
I'm here to mediate the presence of God. Is there something you have for me here today, Lord? And often there's an opportunity to say a word or two to somebody else. It's not always uh, religious words. Sometimes they're just encouraging words. Sometimes it's just being cheerful and upbeat when somebody else is maybe going the other way. The other day I had an occasion where this guy was really swearing a, a storm and using God's name. And I said, I didn't realize you were religious, you know. <laughs> But, you know, it was a positive way of addressing something that uh, <laughs> was going on. He did stop. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, what is God about in terms of the church? It's building a people for God, a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. And so we need to make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. These are the words that are used by Paul to describe the mission of the church in the book of uh, Titus. Then I'd like to direct your thoughts to another uh, section of scripture, and this is, this is the book of 1 Peter. So what does Peter have to say about this? Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, and uh, we'll begin, I think, with verse 9, as I recall. Parenthetically, this is a topical sermon for those of you who are tracking with me from the theology course. <laughs> okay, chapter 2, 1 Peter, and verse 9. But you are a chosen people. Well, for heaven's sakes, I'm looking at a group of what kind of people? Chosen. chosen. <laughs> wow. Chosen by God, Almighty God, the creator of the universe. Chosen for a purpose, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Wow. I just want to underline that, God's special possession. That you may declare, the purpose again, you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, where is our citizenship? It's with God. To abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans or the Gentiles or the people of the world, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And he continues on in this description. So here we have uh, in this description that's given, you are a people of God so that the world around us may see your good deeds and glorify God. Let's take a look again at a description that's given by Paul, and I would like to direct your thoughts then to Ephesians chapter 2. Very important uh, uh, section of Scripture here. Ephesians chapter 2. You know, I'm going to start a little bit further uh, further up in the chapter than I had originally intended. I think this is something that uh, maybe uh, would be, be fitting for us here in this discussion. 
Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves. It's a gift from God. Not by works that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So you're not just saved to go to heaven, gang, and you're not just saved to be kind of a goody-goody Christian. You're really saved to magnify the Lord, to glorify him. We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus. It's very interesting. When I was first uh, initially uh, introduced to the church, uh, it was all about getting saved and going to heaven and eternal life. But really, uh, it, it, it's as much that as it is, how do we live life now? We are saved for a purpose, and the purpose is to bring glory and honor to God in the situations and circumstances that surround us now. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are here to take, mediate the presence of God into our academic spheres. We are here to mediate the presence of God into our the sphere of our careers. We are here to mediate the presence of God into our neighborhood. We are here to mediate and gang, get a hold of this, those of you who are married now. I got your attention all of a sudden. <laughs> to mediate the presence of God into our bedrooms, in our kitchens, in how we relate as husbands and wives to one another, that we can bring the presence of God into that sphere. And sometimes there's a lot of ungodliness that goes on in that sphere. And we need to embrace the fact that that's a sphere of life that can be very challenging sometimes, but it's a sphere that God is calling us to demonstrate his presence to our wives, to our husbands, and in the presence before our children. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Take a look at chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, if you would. Let me read it again. His intent was that now through the church, the body of Christ, the family of God, God's household, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. How big is your audience, do you think? Pretty big audience, according to this description. As the church of Jesus Christ, as the body of Christ, uh, He's speaking of a sphere that we don't see, that sometimes we're not conscious of. But there are the angels in heaven and the demons of hell. There are these unseen spiritual forces. And we, as saved people, people that have entered into life in Christ, are here to be a demonstration to them, as it were, a showcase to demonstrate that there is a marked difference between how we were before and what happened when Christ came into our lives. 
we are here also, according to Jesus, to be salt and light in a world that's losing its savor and dwelling in darkness. And he said to us in Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. I was trying to think of a couple of illustrations of this on my way down here. And uh, one thing that struck me was uh, a, uh, an incident that uh, I observed some years ago of one of the elders in a church in New Jersey. Kevin Gann was an elder, a young elder, wonderful, a very um, accomplished person in his engineering profession. But uh, he was not receiving enough income to really support the family that he had at this time. The children, he, he now had a number of children. And the apartment he had purchased uh, had decreased in value and was much too small, and he was caught in a bind. So he went to his boss, and he asked him if he would give him a raise. And uh, he offered him, I think it was... Um, 5% raise or something. And Kevin said, you know, if I don't have 10%, I can't pull off what I've got in hand in terms of the obligation I have to my family. So anyway, he sent his resume out and uh, an offer came back and uh, the man offered him a 7% uh, raise in salary if he'd come and work for him. And Kevin said, no, I need 10%. And he said, well, if, I, if we give you 10%, will you come? Will you not just use that as leverage? And Kevin said, well, I will. I'll, 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 I'll stick with it. So anyway, he went back to his original boss, and he told him that this offer had been given and that he was submitting his resignation. And the vice president then offered him a 15% raise and $20,000 towards the purchase of a bigger apartment. Kevin was really caught in a bind. What a fine offer. And he said to his VP, he said, I gave my word that I would, I would accept their offer at 10%. I'm sorry, I'll have to turn this down. Now, I would say that's a real mark of integrity. But that's the kind of stuff that God's saying to us we should be offering to this world that we live in. I remember um, a professor that uh, was working at uh, the University of Minnesota and uh, I, I need to be careful here not to get into too long a story. But uh, this guy actually, during World War II, had worked on the atomic bomb in Alabama and had done some of the basic research for this. And late, now he was working in the uh, graduate department, uh, chemistry graduate department at the University of Minnesota. At any rate, uh, we met his wife at a women's meeting and after the meeting, she came by. Uh, we gave an invitation for those who would like to explore more how to have a relationship with God through Christ to meet us over at the piano. And she came, and she accepted the Lord, and she really accepted the Lord. And so she arranged a meeting then out at the lake for her neighbors and friends. And uh, I'm getting into too much of a story here, but it's a good story, so let me just tell it. Uh, sometimes the stories are better than the sermon. Have you ever discovered that? <laughs> but at any rate, uh, here was this meeting, lawyers, doctors, university professors, Eunice and I were there to give our testimony and to explain the faith. And we were so over our heads. 
I mean, this was a, the most sophisticated audience I think I had ever I had ever addressed. And uh, I remember walking away from the meeting saying, "Lord help us." <laughs> uh, we we felt very very uh, uh, lacking in our ability at that time. At any rate, out of this came some wonderful conversions because God works in simple things, and we gave simple testimonies. And uh, one of these was uh, very interesting in that this professor, Fred Smith, his wife had now accepted the Lord. She took him to a Billy Graham meeting and they came home. And later that night, about two in the morning, she's wondering where he was. And she went downstairs and he was by the fireplace with a Bible open, kneeling. And he had accepted the Lord. And uh, this guy was one of the most um, honoring to God men I have ever met as a Christian. And uh, he just took the presence of the Lord wherever he went. His kids would often, when he would stop to get gas, and this was in the days when the guys would come out and pump gas, uh, the kids used to take bets on how long it would take him to uh, open the conversation about God and about Jesus. And uh, one day he, uh, uh, just in, I'm talking about mediating the presence of God now. One day he was walking by the building that he works in. And there was a painter up on the third floor painting the trim on the windows. And uh, he looked up at him and he said, uh, hey, what would happen to you if you fell down from up there? And the guy said, well, I don't know. I'd probably get killed. And uh, well, what would happen to you after that? And he says, well, I don't know. He says, well, come on down here and I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, this is with a British, he's, he's British, British accent. I can't do that. But at any rate, he came down and Fred led him to the Lord. But, you know, just talk about mediating the presence of God. He was so natural in his flow. And they, I heard that at the university, he was very outspoken as a Christian, but in a very natural way. And some of his colleagues said, well, his science is going to slip, but it actually didn't. Uh, he uh, won a number of awards uh, before after that and and when he when he came down with pancreatic cancer and he was dying it was wonderful to go and meet with him and to hear the buoyancy of his faith and confidence and the blessed hope and that which is to come so anyway I, you, you talk about the issue of uh the matter of being salt and light uh, this is a calling that we all have and we need to recognize that we are here to mediate the presence of God. That's your basic purpose, gang, to mediate the presence of God in your garden, where you live. Now, we have another portion of scripture that I'd like to direct your thoughts to as we talk about descriptions for the church. Uh, the church is called a household. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. This is a fairly new Bible, gang, so bear with me here just a moment while I turn the pages. Here Paul is speaking to Timothy, and he says, If I am delayed, 
you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. So here the church is called a household. You know, often an object has the worth of, has worth on the basis of what occupied it or what, who owned it before. For instance, you've heard the line, oh, this is the bed, bed that George Washington slept in. Well, that was just another bed, but it was a bed that George Washington slept in and it had intrinsic value because of that. Well, this household that we're part of has intrinsic value because here we have the presence of God. God is here. God is present with us. And so we need to practice that presence of the Lord, both individually and corporately together, in worship, in praise, in thanksgiving, in adoration, so many ways for us to express that presence. It's also a presence that we practice by what we do, not just by what we say, how we live our lives. It's a family sharing a common life in God. We have a heavenly father who's present. We have brothers and sisters. It's not just superficial social contacts that pass for Christian fellowship. This is a people with committed relationships to live and serve as the people of God. Does that describe you? This is a people with committed relationships to live and serve as a people for God. The church is to be much more than just an institution. It's to be much more than just a supermarket for spiritual values or spiritual things. We are here to be a people that honor and serve the Lord, that live fully for him. God's household, and you are members of that household. It's also called a pillar or the pillar and foundation of truth the first Timothy 3.15 passage here. Not just the great foundational truths, but it's also a matter of how we live our lives. It's truth that's lived, not just left up in a cerebral capacity or a vacuum up here. How do we live our lives? I am reminded of the nursery rhyme from childhood. This is how we brush our teeth, brush our teeth, brush our teeth. <laughs> Well, this is how, in the church, how we relate to God. This is how we relate to each other. This is how we raise our children. This is how our sexuality works. This is how we relate to our neighbors. This is how we conduct ourselves at work as employees or employers. This is how we do our finances and use our finances in a way that glorifies God and that honors him generously. It's a, nursery, it's a nursery, rhyme, nursery rhyme, as it were. This is how we relate to God. This is how we marry. This is how we do family life. This is how we raise our children. This is how we do our sexual life. This is how we reflect our neighbors. By the way, this issue of sexuality is so confusing today. I mean, the culture is speaking to us massively in a way that is totally reductionist, reducing us to creatures, not the image bearers of God. And I would just challenge you today to really think that through as we deal with a culture that is going in just the totally opposite direction. 
The truth that God is giving us is rising, raising us above being sophisticated animals to live as the image bearers of God. And in this, uh, then God is moving us towards true maturity. Well, I think with that, I'm going to uh, close my time with you. And I just basically want to call you on to be what God has called you to be. He hasn't called you just to have pie in the sky in the hereafter. He's promised that, and that is our ultimate goal. And in that, uh, in that we will have, there will come a time when we will have bodies like Jesus, and we will be able to live on the high level of our good intentions. And we will live in a culture or in a world that is perfected, and we will as humanity be perfected. But as we wait for that time, that blessed hope that lies before us, we have a task to accomplish here on earth. Because as redeemed humanity through the work of Jesus, we are now called to so live in this world that the world around us, around us sees the presence of God in our lives through our works and through our words, through how we live our lives. It's a very high calling. It's a calling to be God's people. It's a calling to live in such a manner that the world sees the presence of God through us. Why else is the church called the body of Christ? The church mediates the presence of Christ. Now I would just challenge you with me, think this through. Would it not be a good thing for you too, as you start the day, to say, who am I? I'm the image bearer of God. To say to yourself, why am I here? What is my purpose? Now, on earth, it's to mediate the presence of God. For those of you who are in the theology course, this would be called um, inaugurated eschatology. <laughs> It's the fact that actually the future has begun now. Yes. It's begun right now. And we are to so live as God's people in a way that really honors him, that blesses him, and recognizes the fact that he is the Lord of our lives now. And that uh, we are living now on the basis of what will come.